You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. Hi, and welcome back. This is episode 34 of the Ancestral Elements Podcast. This week, I want to talk about this five-kingdom approach to nutrition. I've covered a lot of concepts already through various episodes, but I want to get it all in one place so you guys have a single episode you can kind of go back to and get just the basics of everything that we've talked about. So I want to stitch basically everything together in this approach that I call a five-kingdom approach to nutrition. This is an approach that isn't really talked about a whole lot. There are some people leaning this direction, but I'm going to take elements from nature, from anthropology, from current nutrition guidelines, from kind of fringe nutrition, and I put them together in this five-kingdom approach. But this is not a diet plan. At least, it isn't one that you would normally see or think about. This is more of a framework for you to be able to approach eating and your diet in a little bit more of a, and I hate to use the word holistic, but in a little bit more of a holistic and natural way. It's an integrated approach. And so it provides not only a ton of wiggle room for the individual person, but it allows you to set it up under this umbrella of species diversity and genetic diversity. I think where a lot of diet plans kind of get off the rails is there's a lot of rigidity And typically when you hear diet, you automatically think of cutting things out. You automatically think of restriction. I'm not going to eat this food or that food. Oh, I'm on a diet. I can't have this. And the fact of the matter is most people go on fad diets and yo-yo most of their life. And really it comes down to not having a deep understanding of why they're even eating those types of foods to begin with and what those foods actually do to their body. This approach is going to set your body up and prime your body for general well-being and health. I've been thinking about this type of nutrition for about the last decade or so. You know, like a lot of us at the time, I started with kind of plant-based and thinking that that was a great option. You know, I thought if you could you know, go vegan. It's probably really good. Um, I was, you know, juicing a ton. Um, to me, it was like, it made a lot of sense because you're getting a bunch of micronutrients and trace minerals into your diet that you normally wouldn't be getting because people don't eat that many vegetables and fruits. And so by juicing them, you get this kind of infusion of nutrients and phytochemistry that can do a lot for your body. And it can, don't get me wrong. But it needs to go a lot farther than that. Because you can't just live off of carrot juice, you know. It needs to go a lot deeper. And so, well, that might be an okay thing to explore for a little while, you can't get so dogmatic in your thinking and ideas that you end up causing harm and occasionally irreversible damage because of the diet that you chose and the strict path that you've chose. And so this is essentially kind of an evolution that I've been on. And this thing is still unfolding. I don't want to make it sound like I have it everything all worked out 100% because I don't. We're dealing with very, very complex systems. And at times, they're a bit vague. And I think that's okay because this is going to provide you 
enough to go off of. And I don't want to give you every single answer because I don't have every single answer to your nutrition and to your lifestyle and health because everybody is different. You know, as similar as we all are and the body is, which it is, it's just as different. I mean, I can remember sitting during my undergrad, you know, learning these concepts of nutrition, you know, learning all the RDAs and, you know, upper limits of specific nutrients and, you know, learning about developmental nutrition and, you know, all of these concepts that are covered in, you know, a four-year nutrition program. But it's still, it wasn't an exact science. It wasn't even a complete picture. You know, I learned a lot during that time, but I also spent a lot of time studying anthropology, cultural anthropology, nutritional anthropology. You know, I was reading works by Weston A. Price, um, looking at a lot of kind of ethnographic reports on hunter-gatherers. I was really curious about this question of what were people doing before farmed food? Because that was the thing about really any conventional nutrition program. It's all centered around farmed food and industrialization of crops and domestication of crops and animals. So really there's implicit bias baked in to the culture, the culture surrounding food and nutrition. It gets carried and perpetuated from cultural understandings of the way we view things socially, economically. It's all in kind of intertwined and infused in people's inherent biases. And it is even through reading anthropology, because anthropology is a Western science. It's a Western practice. If you think about that for a second, people went to tribes and hunter-gatherer populations with their own biases and then wrote them down from their own perspectives, usually a white settler perspective. Some works are better than others, but there's bias in everything. And so when thinking about nutrition, the best anybody can do is try to strip all the biases away. And that's why if you base your nutrition on a broad range of diversity, diversity of species, diversity of timing of eating, such as feeding windows and eating seasonally, diversity in the preparation, whether it's cooking or fermentation, all of that stuff matters. But you virtually get none of that with a Western reductionist approach to our current nutrition. I mean, I didn't learn any of that, you know. I learned a little bit of canning, you know. But other than that, we weren't talking about fermentation. We weren't talking about how to prepare wild foods, you know, such as acorns and it being that you need to leach out tannic acid. It was none of that. It was, this is the RDA for magnesium, calcium, zinc, copper, iron, and make sure that you are running nutrition software to measure people's, you know, RDIs, which is recommended daily intake, which is all fine and well. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that stuff, and it's useful information to have, especially if you're doing clinical nutrition. But really, when you look at a hospital setting where clinical nutrition is most used, those things fly out the window very, very quickly. Because look what they're serving in hospitals. Most hospitals are serving people jello, white bread, right? They're not getting high-end nutrition, which is predominantly why people are ending up in the hospital to begin with. 
is because of a lack of nutrition. So it's this kind of perpetual cycle, right? It's this endless feedback loop of multiple systems at play, whether it's economic or health-motivated or legislation, right? There's multiple facets coming in to create this approach to modern nutrition and to fad diets. So when I talk about this five kingdom approach to nutrition, my goal at the beginning of thinking about this was to kind of strip away all the inherent bias, all the kind of paradigm stuff that had been established and try to approach this from a fresh perspective, a perspective that blended modern and ancestral, that blended adherence and practicality. And through this approach, you'll get adequate, solid nutrition that you can count on. And it's varied. And you can vary it based on what you like, what you need, what stage of life you're in, because you can't just take one approach. There is no right way to think about nutrition, because humans are extremely adaptable. Like I talked about last episode in the fat episode, there are populations in the Arctic that live predominantly off of whale blubber about half the year, right? Versus the equator where you're living off of a lot of fruits and plants, you know, pretty much all year. So depending on where you're at, you should be basing your nutrition off of, but still trying to get adequate diversity from the things that surround you on your landscape. That's kind of where this differs from any other fad diet, is that it encompasses what ancestral food practices used to be like, but it also puts perspective on modern principles that we've honed in on and that we've isolated and that we can test for. Because it's nice to know that the approach you're taking is actually helping, and you can test for that. You can look at that through data sets, which is really cool. You know, and as you get deeper and deeper into this approach, the need for hard data tends to fade away. It's not something you need to approach all the time. Generally, you're going to be hitting your markers if you have diversity in your diet. Because one thing that this diet really does, when you're getting all five kingdoms of life in your diet, so you're getting animal, plant, bacterial, fungal, protist, all of those feed your microbiome and feed the organs and the cells because you have a diverse suite of nutrients coming in that your body can draw off of throughout the year. Whereas if you only ate two types of things, it would start out feeling really good because it suppresses the immune system. So carnivore, veganism, perfect ex example, right? You really, you narrowly eat certain species of foods, and it causes the immune system to kind of calm down, to get suppressed, because the body has less to process, less to digest. But then you carry that experiment out to its extremes, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and the body doesn't have enough nutrition, enough nutrients to continue on at that scale, at that level. And so things start to break down. And that happens all the time with any extreme diet like this. So by leveling the playing field, so to speak, with true species diversity, your body has plenty to draw off of whenever it needs. 
it doesn't mean you have to eat all five kingdoms with every meal, because that's silly. You don't have to do that. But just making sure you're getting those in periodically throughout the year, it's going to set your body up through your digestion, via the microbiome, and through your epigenetics, which is why I got into nutritional genomics to begin with. So that's the other side of my specialty, is nutritional genomics. And the understanding that the better genetics, the more robust genetics that you can eat, it's going to feed your own genetics. And that's back to that ancestral wisdom of getting foods in the wild off of the landscape near you. Because they're not only going to be the freshest, but they're going to have dealt with the same chemicals, the same sunlight, the same wind, the same air that you're dealing with, that your body is being shaped subtly by. Those plants, those animals, those fungi, that algae is being shaped by those same factors. There's no separation. And so if you can build your body from that food, it's going to prime your body for your environment. And see, that's what the microbiome is all about. It's about priming your body for your environment. It's just the fancy way of saying it. It's the scientific reductionist way of saying, I want to be a part of the environment, right? I want to make my body similar to the environment that I'm living in. That's how your body stays regulated. Because it turns out that your microbiome changes rapidly, not only seasonally as food changes on the landscape, but within days, hours even. Because somebody living in Ohio doesn't want the same type of microbiome, the same bacteria, the same archaea, the same viruses in their gut than somebody living in South Africa. It's going to be vastly different because their body is being shaped out of things that are vastly different. Not all of this is equal. And it shouldn't be because it should be based on your bioregion. So eating a blood type diet, eating what your ancestors ate, you know, that lived out in Sweden, it all kind of fades away when you look at it from this perspective because it's about the here and now. It's about what you're continually eating and building your body from. Are you only building your body from foods that are imported thousand miles away? Or are you occasionally dipping your toe into some local foods? You know, chances are it's probably occasionally. I mean, some of you listening are undoubtedly foraging. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast. But thinking about where your food is coming from and about why you're eating locally and why you're building your body from this food becomes kind of the central question of all of this stuff. But it'll give you longevity. It'll give the cells in the microbiome and your organs, longevity. And it doesn't get boring. It's not just, you know, skinless chicken breast and broccoli, you know, that you're shoving in every day and meal prepping, you know, a week ahead of time and freezing them and then thawing it out and eating it. I mean, that gets boring. And then the next thing that happens is you don't stick to the diet because it's uninteresting. True diversity is interesting. I mean, you can have fish one night and organ meats the next night and seaweed salads for lunch, and all this complexity, all this food is just sitting out there waiting to be eaten. But yet most of us are just eating about 30 species a year, because that's the other thing. Through domestication, we've domesticated the same species to have an appearance that's different. 
but nutritionally, genetically, it's the same. You know, there's slight variations nutritionally from broccoli to collard greens, but it's not much. It's pretty negligible. You know, it's, it's like that in a lot of other families of plants as well. You know, the nightshades are a little bit more variation, uh, but, you know, you're getting a lot of the same buildups of toxins and medicinal compounds that regulate processes in your body, which is precisely why you, you want to have a broad spectrum of species in your diet. So you're not over consuming a lot of plant, the same plant toxins, for example, or the same toxins that are coming out of mushrooms. It's so that your body can get a break and can get some separation from those things. You know, eating only broccoli as your vegetable is eventually going to ro start robbing some iodine from your body and cause some thyroid disturbances. Eating very narrow species, you're not only lacking in your nutrition, in diversity and nutrition, you're also getting an overaccumulation of certain toxins and compounds that can start to compromise your health as well. And then you're getting into concepts like environmental hormesis that's doing that. And so getting and eating the same and assimilating the same types of stresses that plants and mushrooms and even algaes make can be taxing on the body if you never give it a rest. Again, we're back to why it's sometimes good to eat in a narrow window for a very brief point in time. If you have a lot of autoimmune issues going on that you need to clear up, it can be good to really narrow down because it's going to suppress the immune system because it doesn't have much to work with. But you can't get so dogmatic in that that you forget everything else because then it starts to become a bad thing. So there are times to toggle back and forth. And if you want to do that, do that seasonally. Do that with the food that's in season because your body's going to be ready for that food and it's going to be able to utilize that food more efficiently and effectively. Does that make sense? Because your microbiome changes with the season that you're in, right? Right now, high UV load on the body. What's coming out? It's the dark pigmented fruits are coming out, right? Blackberries, blueberries, shadbush, gooseberries, mulberries, raspberries, currants, all of those things are going to be UV protective and have masses of amounts of antioxidants. Great this time of year. Load up on as much as you possibly want, but when they're gone, they're gone and you should taper, right? Blueberries in the fall or winter frozen aren't going to be a bad thing, but you shouldn't be eating as many. You should be into other stuff that's in season. You know, if you have a garden and are growing a ton of vegetables, you know, carrots, radish, cabbage, things like that, you know, think about different preparations. Fermentation, for example, right? It's going to utilize and pull out different nutritional value. That's why fermentation is so fantastic. You know, same thing with cooking. Sometimes cooking can release better nutrition because it's partly digested essentially is what cooking or fermentation does it's starting an enzymatic process of breaking down and making your body use it more efficiently because your body doesn't have to work quite as hard so different preparations go a long way in kind of increasing the nutritional value or getting at least a slight different tweak on the nutrition that you have coming in you know raw food diet was really popular for a short time there. You know, people do great on it for six months or so. You know, 
you push that out 10, 20 years, your body's going to start to fail. It's just not enough diversity. Diversity in species, diversity in preparation. Your body needs engagement on many different levels. And food is no different. You know, think about exercise. If all you were to do is run ultra marathons, that's kind of like eating an extreme fad diet. Not very good for your body. You're going to end up with some in injuries if all you're trying to do is run 150 miles a day, right? Not smart. You need balance. You need diversity. And you may be wondering why people will choose an extreme diet. I mean, in general, typically it's because you feel good in the beginning. Again, you get some immune suppression. Your energy kind of kicks up because you're not digesting a ton of different things. And you feel good. But the other piece of that is even if you do stay on it 10, 20 years, a lot of times people then are propped up by medications in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. The majority of people are on pharmaceutical medication. So you can get away with a lot more poor nutrition nowadays than you were able to in the past because your health would fail rapidly in the past without medications kind of keeping you propped up a bit. You see what I'm getting at? So your nutrition can suffer for decades and decades, and you can just get placed on this kind of proxy for health. And you can live a long time doing that. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't make you healthy. That's the difference between having longevity and real health versus using kind of the current paradigm where it's, you know, if you're above 80 years old, there's like, it's about 90% of people are on prescription medication. Excuse me, like 98% roughly are on prescription medication. That's a big percentage. You know, that should tell you there's something fundamentally wrong with the longevity of our elders. Because 150 years ago, 300 years ago, 10,000 years ago, that wasn't the case. Yes, people died a little bit earlier. But what's your quality of life? in your later life stage is going to be like being propped up on multiple medications. Generally, it's not great. You know, is your quality of life really that great when you're in your late 90s? Generally speaking, no, it's not great. Not if you've had diabetes and obesity, you know, a lot of times in your younger years, you know, a lot of times you wouldn't even make it to your 90s if you had metabolic disease like that in your earlier years of your life. So, you know, it's really, it's about the approach you want to take. You know, you can invest early in your health, in your early stages of life, you know, as a young adult, especially when things start to really count. They count in childhood too, but as you get into your 20s, 30s, 40s, especially, it starts to really matter because that's when things start to catch up with you. If you're, you know, 10 years old, you've got a lot of development to do and you can get away with a lot more with poor nutrition habits. It's not wise, but you've got a lot of years ahead of you and things aren't going to catch up with you as quickly as they do when you're, say, 50. So keeping this approach of nutrition in mind, keeping balance, not overeating one, two or three types of species a year, right? Getting true diversity in your diet is going to provide you with longevity and with health. So you don't have to take as many pharmaceutical drugs because you're going to be getting 
slight microdoses through your food, and it's going to be regulating your body. You know, not many people eat lichen, for example, which is a protist. You know, Irish moss is a great example of that. It's eaten in Ireland still. It's kind of considered a poverty food, but there's a long history of Irish moss, you know, and there's a lot of pharmaceutical research going into lichens because they're a powerful medicinal compound that can be utilized. And if you're getting that in your diet, you're getting those compounds. You know, again, not something you want to eat all of the time, but if you're getting that into the diet occasionally, a few times a year, you know, a couple times a month, whatever it is, it's going to be better than not getting those types of things in, especially as you start to age, because your life stage should dictate your nutrition because your body changes. It's not a static thing. And I want to say that again, your life stage should dictate your nutrition. So if you're 80, 90 years old, things like higher protein, right? Good lean meats with a little bit of fat, limited carbohydrates are going to provide your body with better longevity than eating 60% carbohydrates or whatever it may be, especially processed carbohydrates. If you're eating even 40% carbohydrates, whereas if you're six years old, you may want to be up towards 40% carbohydrates because your brain needs a ton of energy for development, which I think gets missed a lot. You know, life stage really does matter when it comes to nutrition. I mean, that's why I'm not sitting here trying to tell everybody what diet they should eat. I'm just kind of giving you some guidelines. I'm giving you an approach to follow rather than specific directions. Now, if I sat down with you and looked over your diet and lifestyle, and we talked about family history and what kind of stress you're under and what life stage you're in, that would be a different story. I would be able to hone in on more specifics. And that's what I do with people. But as a general guiding principle, this is a nice thing to follow. Because if you can get all five kingdoms in your diet, either cycle them in and out on a monthly basis or seasonal basis, that's fantastic. Because it's going to keep things far more balanced than just, you know, eating tomatoes, broccoli, chard, and, you know, kale, and maybe some button mushrooms and beef, you know, throughout the year, and chicken, you know, maybe a fish or two, you know. It's, um, this is a, a balanced, nuanced approach, and it takes the guesswork out of counting calories and juggling macronutrients and wondering if you're hitting micronutrients. You know, you don't have to worry about any of that, which is why adherence is so low to most diets to begin with. I mean, people last about three weeks and then they're done. The other thing about eating all five kingdoms is you're getting not only species diversity, but genetic diversity. And this is kind of back into nutritional genomics, is the more robust genetics you eat, you're going to build your own epigenetics and genetics from those genetics. And this is important because we don't think about the genetics that we eat very often. And we rarely think about the genetics we eat building our own genetics and having an impact in some circumstances for 300 years. So 300 years down your ancestral line can impact 
your genetics right now because of something that they ate frequently. Isn't that crazy that your great-great-great-grandfather could have ate you know, cabbage just about every day of his life and that now impacts your genetics at this very moment? I mean, it's something that isn't talked about a whole lot and it's something we rarely think about in this day and age. You know, that pizza you ate 300 years from now is going to have an effect potentially on your ancestor, which is impactful. At least it should be impactful. It should impact your decisions on the types of food you eat. So that's what I'm saying. This sets you up not only for your life, but it sets you up genetically to pass on robust genetics. And if you've already done that, at least you can teach your kids, grandkids, great-grandkids so they can pass on robust genetics because it changes quick, you know. That's the other thing about your epigenome is it's rapidly changing, like I talked about. It changes in days. You can go from basically completely different bacteria, viruses, fungi, archaea in your microbiome that have an influence directly on your epigenetics. That's how this works, is the microbiome and the way things break down signal the epigenome to regulate the process of silencing or expressing genes. And we all, you know, very, very different subsets of epigenetics and what genes are turned on and off. It's foolish to think about food just calories in, calories out, and counting macronutrients. It's very, very silly because it's a lot more complex than that. I mean, so much so that, you know, your great-great-great-grandfather has an effect on who you've become. I mean, and so looking at these different elements, that's why I've called this podcast Ancestral Elements, because there's tons of different elements you can get into, little facets that change outcomes, that change your daily life. But it also is about the impact that you can't see, that can't be foreseen down the line. Can you break these generational cycles? You know, just because your mom had diabetes and was obese doesn't mean that you have to have a diabetes and be obese? Or is your grandmother, right? Like, have you made necessary changes to break some of these bad generational cycles that are easy to get into? Because it's what we know and it's what we're comfortable with. And that's where, you know, sometimes styles of eating or cultures of eating, it moves beyond nutrition. It moves to emotions and it moves to a place of, hmm, a place of disempowerment rather than empowerment. And it's not a good place to be. You should know why you're eating the food that you're eating. And you should have reasons for it. I'm never mad at people if they've thought about the diet that they want to be on and they've thought through multiple generations. And if they choose to land on a diet that I don't agree with, but they've thought about those things, I'm all for it, right? I'm not perfect. No one that I know is perfect. But this is a framework that makes sense to me. And it makes sense to my own lifestyle, my own biases, my own education, my own learned experiences. This is something that I've developed over about a, a decade or so. It actually, I mean, it started at early childhood on a homestead, you know, being so premature, being three and a half months premature and being forced into a body that didn't function well. And then realizing, coming to the realization that food had a direct impact on the way that I felt and the way that my body functioned was a launching pad to try to dig my way out of an almost certain life way of challenge. Because 
Most people being born that early have a lot of developmental issues. I was lucky enough to have space and time to reflect and pay attention to changes in my body and learn how to get myself out of that place and to try to optimize everything that I possibly could. That's what I'm drawing off of. And that's what the conventional, you know, education program that I went through didn't really address. And not many people have that learned experience. Not that many people were born one pound, 12 ounces and three and a half months early and had the luxury of growing up on a homestead with cattle and goats and pigs and chickens and horses and had time to sit in the woods by themselves to build forts to eat nettle and chantrail mushrooms and wild game and, and fish for salmon 300 yards below their property on the Puget Sound, to walk barefoot in the grass, to connect with the rhythms of life. Not that many people have that learned experience and have food shape them that early. I fortunately had that luxury because when your body is that rough, when the systems of your body don't function like they should. Every little positive input has a big impact. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. You talk to healthy people, they're doing a thousand things, and they're not really sure what's helping and what's not helping. Whereas you get somebody who's super sick on death's door, and you start giving them good food, they get good sunlight, right? Those things are impactful. They matter. And so when I say I was forced to pay attention to my body, I mean I was forced to pay attention to my body because those small things were hugely impactful in my well-being and in my overall health and how I functioned on a day-to-day -day level because I was in rough shape up until about seven years old. And if I didn't have all that, if I didn't have all of those things coming together, I would not be sitting here and talking to you right now. I would not be who I am today. And it shaped this whole approach that I've been talking about really these last 34 weeks that I've done this podcast. This is where I'm coming from. This is why this makes sense. This has been really a lifetime of unraveling very complex questions that I had at a very, very young age. Ones that I probably will never get full answers to, but will continue to bounce around in my head late at night when I can't sleep, or whatever it may be. So looking at this systematically, genetically, using data, but also using the ancestral wisdom and the work that's previously been done makes the most sense to me. Remember, it is entirely possible that you have 300 years of ancestral genetics affecting your current genetics right now. That's impactful. Your nutrition, your lifestyle, matter. Not just for you, but down the line. All right. I think that is going to do it for the episode this week. Thank you so much for listening. I guess to wrap it up, remember to get some diverse kingdoms of life in your diet, and that'll spread out your species diversity and genetic diversity, right? Eat some seaweeds. Eat some Irish sea moss. Eat animals. Eat plants. Eat mushrooms. Get varied species. Time them through the seasons, and don't get so dogmatic about stuff because it really doesn't help. And as always, get outside. All right, I'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. 
This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail, and you can connect with other listeners. Thank you.